Hello, Capital Region. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine on WOOCLP 105.3 FM in Troy and WOOSLP 98.9 FM in Schenectady. Broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, I'm Lavonia Mallory and I'm still on my couch. I'm Guy Schaefer coming to you from my kitchen. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, WOC's Elizabeth Kress speaks with Angela Baylor, a member of the Reimagined Troy Community Justice Services Working Group about the police reform process and community involvement here in Troy. Then on Reclaiming History, Livonia speaks to Professor Anthony Paul Farley of Albany Law School about the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, Trumpism, white supremacy, uh, and the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. After that, Rensselaer County historian Kathy Sheehan spoke with producer Melissa Bromley about some of the remarkable women who've lived here in honor of Women's History Month. Then on another segment of Reclaiming History, Livonia Mallory interviews the local president of the Schenectady chapter of the NAACP, Nicole Harris, to talk about the lawsuit filed against ex-president Trump and Ruli Giuliani for violating the KKK Act. And to close out the show, we have two art segments about what's on display at the Arts Center of the Capital Region in downtown Troy, New York. But first, here are the headlines. The, the Times Union reports that after hearing emotional appeals to reject or amend the city po police reform report, the Troy City Council said that it would amend on April 1st to better provide what the community wants. Many residents said the report failed to address the systemic racism in Troy in the Troy Police Department and failed to talk to Black Lives Matter activists. The council members appeared to agree that the police force should hand off as many mental health calls to specialists as possible. Eight Democrats have filed for five open seats on the Schenectady City Council, setting up a lively primary on June 22nd. The race for the seats will pit three incumbents, City Council President John uh, Mutoverin and uh, Council Members Karen Zalewski-Wudzunas and Marion Porterfield against Demoni Farley. The special election to fill the last two years of two positions will feature Doreen DeToro, Therese McCammon, Haleeb Samuel, and Carl Williams. The Assembly Impeachment Inquiry into Governor Cuomo expanded Thursday after reports that the governor apparently violated the state law to direct senior Department of Health officials to provide COVID-19 testing to his family and political allies in the early days of the pandemic when tests were particularly scarce. President Biden on Thursday indicated that he did not plan to follow through on former President Trump's decision to remove troops from Afghanistan after two decades of occupation. He said the troops will remain until at least the end of this year. The Gazette reported that the recent push by the city of Schenectady to enforce alternate side parking in the stockade neighborhood has resulted in a prolonged struggle for limited spots. Residents said that the tight parking is also creating safety hazards as visibility has been reduced in some areas. Recent two-hour limits on parking on some streets were removed due to the complaints. The Neighborhood Association has called for the city to halt parking tickets until it comes up with a more workable plan. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, coming to you from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy. Our mission is to use art, and participatory action to promote social and environmental justice and freedom of creative expression. 
This program is produced by community members and funded in part by monthly donations from sanctuary sustainers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, that's hmm. at mediasanctuary.org, or call us at 518-272-2390, that's 518-272-2390. April 1st, 2021 is a deadline for municipalities to turn in their police reform plans to the state of New York. On Thursday, March 25th, 2021, Troy City Council unanimously voted to move it forward with amendments. Today we are talking about Troy's response to Executive Order 203 on police reform. On Thursday, the City Council in Troy unanimously approved the Police Reform and Reinvention Collaborative's draft report in its finance committee saying that it would be amended by the April 1st deadline to better provide what the community wants. We are joined today by Angela Beeler, a member of the Reimagine Troy Community Justice Service Working Group, to talk about police reform process here in Troy. Angela, thank you for joining me on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. What is your reaction to the PRRC or the police reform process and the draft report that just came out from that working group. Just to give some context, in June 12th, uh, 2020, Governor Cuomo issued Executive Order 203 calling for all municipalities in New York State with a police agency to begin a process of review of policing on a number of different issues. But the biggest ones that they listed, trust, transparency, fairness, and in relation to um, disproportionate policing and systemic racism and the impacts of their policies, procedures, and actions in their community, specifically in communities of color. This was issued June 12, 2020. It took almost eight months for the Troy mayor's office to announce that they were going to be convening uh, this working group to uh, answer to Executive Order 203. I feel like it's a characteristic silence um, that, you know, they didn't say anything to the Troy public about any reactions to this, or we're working on it, or we're going to get to it, nothing. And then suddenly they announced this committee. The committee was largely composed of police, police sympathizers, uh, people who were former police, whose spouses were police, um, whose uh, spouses were former judges, um, people with real investments um, in the culture and practices of the criminal justice system and policing as we know it. Um, and they also had a, num- a few voices of people who are active in the community of Troy. And those happen to be some of the only people of color on this committee. So it was a group of largely white people who have, you know, a long history within um, policing. And many of them, including Chief Brian Owens, have been on the record within the past year as saying they do not believe that there is systemic racism within the Troy Police Department. Um, you have DeWolf, the uh, deputy chief who uh, was on the committee, in response to the lawsuit that was brought against the city of Troy and the Troy PD and Officer French by one of the few black officers, uh, Officer Christopher Johnson, a lawsuit about systemic racism in the police department. And when he was um, interviewed by the Times Union, he was quoted as saying, we do not have racism within the Troy PD. 
So these are the people uh, tasked to review how the police uh, system has been working and how it might be reformed and even reimagined. They convened uh, nine meetings in the month of February. Um, only three of those uh, were open for public comment. Uh, three of them invited a few select affinity groups that did not really address the breadth of voices that could be heard in this process, and three uh, of their own meetings. That process was not on any of their websites, not on any of the calendars, involved a two-part uh, registration process to even speak, was not made accessible to people with differing abilities, who needed um, language translation, who might not have a computer or internet. And so it seemed to me designed to be deliberately disenfranchising. And it was one of the calls of the Executive Order 203 that they needed to convene their residents and stakeholders to have a say and discuss what policing in their city has meant. So let's talk about that document. Once the report came out, um, it's very short. Other municipalities, I mean, and it's not about getting into page count, but because for instance, Saratoga Springs had a very robust um, rep- you know, representative uh, group of people volunteering their time to address questions related to policing and systemic racism. Albany issued over 100 pages after spending months and months and bringing in um, many you know, stakeholders, residents, advocates, uh, lawyers uh, to discuss these things. So their lack of investment in it says a lot. Their lack of uh, openness and transparency on producing a document to try to create trust and transparency says a lot. The report that did come up maybe once mentions the term um, racism uh, in many ways says that, well, we heard from the community, and what the community told us is that they don't really understand us, and they don't really understand how policing works. And so we just need to, part of it is we just need to find ways to explain to them how we work so they will better understand us and trust us. When those who were brought to the table to speak or who signed up to speak were saying, you are not creating the situations to hear us. We are telling you that we feel violated. We feel scared. We have young black children in particular who we are afraid to grow up in this system. We are afraid about whether or not they can survive this. Um, We are asking for investment in our communities, investment in in services that might serve those who have mental health uh, issues, might serve those who have difficulties uh, supporting themselves in their day-to-day. Those are the things that you could reallocate funding from or retake the tasks of attending to the community from the Troy police uh, and have others who are more equipped to answer those needs answer those needs. But what this document says is that you came and you spoke and we didn't, we didn't listen, we downplayed, we denied, and in the end, we're just, we're just going to keep basically going on with business as usual. It really does feel like. You're a part of the Troy Community Justice Services Working Group, and you all organized a speak out before Thursday's finance meeting and then organize people to come and speak at the finance meeting. So I just wanted to hear a little bit why there was a need to have that speak out and what did you hear and where does this process go from here? 
we organized the speak out on Thursday because we were aware that the report was going to be um, voted upon by the finance committee. And so we took it as an opportunity to actually extend the mic to give more space for residents of Troy to have a voice and say in this. There were many people who did show up and spoke uh, in the affinity groups or at public comment uh, who were very upset about feeling that their voices were disregarded, feeling like they brought vulnerable stories about their personal experiences, their concerns about their friends, family, and children. And that this committee looked back and said, thank you for, thank you for speaking, move on. And so we wanted to provide an open space for, for people to come and share their experiences and their voices on this. And we wanted the finance committee to hear that there, that there were voices of dissent that were not captured in the February uh, series of meetings. And I think it had an impact. For one thing, just to convene some very, very powerful voices, some people who are running for city council in the coming year, um, people who have been active for a very long in Troy, people who, who, are, who are new to being involved in this. What this says is that this is not an end or a beginning. This is one piece of this whole uh, movement to challenge systemic racism and to make changes and to challenge police violence and white supremacy. And, um, and I think we, we had a real impact because Yes, it, it passed in the finance committee. Um, all seven uh, members voted for it to move on, but not without taking the time to review elements and try to capture within it, whatever that might end up meaning, um, some of the voices of the those in the community who felt that the report did not reflect their experiences and their desires and their visions for how things could actually change for the better. So just to jump in, the Finance Committee agreed unanimously, like you said, to push this forward, but with edits. The deadline is April 1st. Does the community get response or what, what happens between now and April 1st? There's an April 1st deadline. So if they don't meet the deadline, then they do risk some federal and state fundings um, if they don't meet the executive order deadline. They will likely pass, but there are committees um, that are going to be meeting in the coming week to make decisions on how to amend this. And so I would actually encourage people to reach out to their city council members and um, send them a letter. Tell them what you want to hear in this report that is not there. There's still some time to have some influence um, on on this. But again, this document, it didn't it doesn't have much room to get better, but we have room on time to organize because that's that's where the change is going to come is from the community coming together and challenging those in power to hear, to hear it and to make a change. Um, that's where we're going to have the impact. Angela Beeler, Reimagine Troy Community Justice Services Working Group. Thank you for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much. That was Elizabeth Press speaking with Angela Bayo of the members to reimagine Troy Community Justice Service Work Group. Stay tuned next week for excerpts of the community speak out. Next, in part one of this segment of Reclaiming History, Livonia speaks with Professor Anthony Paul Farley of Albany Law School about the KKK Act, the lawsuit filed against Trump. Trumpism, white supremacy, and the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Once again, welcome to another segment of Reclaiming History with Lavonia Mallory. I am honored that we have a very special guest on the line 
Today, we will be talking about the Ku Klux Klan Act and Trumpism. My special guest is Professor Anthony Paul Farley. Professor Farley has a BA from the University of Virginia and a JD from Harvard Law School. He is the James Campbell Matthews Distinguished Professor of Jurisprudence at Albany Law School. He was the James and Mary Lassiter Distinguished Visiting Professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law and the Andrew Jefferson Endowed Chair in Trial Advocacy at Texas Southern University's Thurgood Marshall School of Law in 2014 and 2015. Professor Farley, he was the Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Office of U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia prior to serving as a federal prosecutor. Professor Farley practiced law as corporate securities associate with Sherman and Sterling in New York City. Professor Farley is well-published and his work has appeared in chapter form with various publishers from the Cambridge University Press, Caroline Academic Press, Duke University Press, Temple University Press, to name just a few. He's appeared in a short film, Slavery in Effect. Professor Farley was nominated and elected for membership in the American Law Institute in 2017. He served a three-year term as executive committee of the minority section of the Association for American Law Schools. He's a member of the Society for American Law. He's a member of the board of directors of the Center for Public Representation. Professor Farley, are you there? I, I am here. So I was so excited when I heard the news, I'm sure like most Americans, that the NAACP has filed a lawsuit against ex-President Trump and Giuliani based on a civil war or reconstruction law known as the KKK Act. And I thought, I need to get an expert, someone that knows the legal lay of the land, some constitutional history that can give my listeners a more informed understanding about the KKK Act. What is it? Why do we have such a law on the books? Well, first, I want to say it's great to join you. I'm really happy to be on Reclaiming History. And this is, a, I guess, a great topic um, to be able to talk about today. The January 6th insurrection was something new for most of us, but it mm. wasn't really new. And mm. we've dealt with threats to American democracy before, right? And I, I think exhuming or examining, uh, doing both really, those threats is something central to your program. Mm -hmm. We know the history of this country, right? You know, slavery was here even before 1619, our first documented moment of slavery uh, in territory that would later become the United States of America. But we had slavery from then until uh, 1865 with the defeat of the Confederate South by mm -hmm. the Grand Army of the Republic, by the Union. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that's the true Emancipation Day, not the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. Okay. So things didn't go well after emancipation. There was a brief moment called Reconstruction where the freed men and women, the former slaves of the Confederate South, brought democracy to America for the first time. Mm. They invented the idea of public uh, schooling in the South. Right? Some of your listeners will know, but some won't, that it was illegal to teach a slave how to read, and slaves caught knowing how to read and write were uh, typically had their uh, a finger or two cut off by their masters, uh, all of which was perfectly legal during the days of slavery. So the freedmen and freedwomen were very interested in democracy and ran for office, were elected to office, and set about to modernize the South. Uh, they were met with resistance, violent resistance, throughout the former Confederacy. Whites spontaneously organized themselves into terrorism groups uh, to make sure that the union officials, that the uh, government officials couldn't do their proper job when doing their jobs properly required aiding the development of democracy in the South. Uh, black office holders were brutalized, black voters were brutalized uh, and murdered uh, by white terror groups throughout the South. The KKK Act of 1871 was meant to deal with that kind of lawlessness, mm -hmm. to protect uh, the mechanisms of democracy against organized terrorism by white supremacists bent on making America great again. Ooh. Yeah. The, well, those those we, words are chilling to me, Professor, when you say that. <laughs> it, it's chilling. Those words should be chilling because they, they're, uh, Donald Trump and the GOP were as clear as Kristallnacht um, in and their announcement of their plans and methods when they pushed for office in 2016 and in 2020. Most of us, many of us, I, saw this coming. I saw January 6, 2021 uh, coming. They made it clear that they weren't going to leave office just because they didn't get sufficient number of electoral votes. So the KKK Act of 1871 is exciting. It's not just a relic of history. It's a way of trying to save democracy. We know what happened with the Redeemers. That's what the MAGA people of the 1860s and 1870s called themselves. They were redeeming the South, making it great again by driving black office holders from office. Unfortunately, they succeeded. Mm. When the Union um, Army ceased its military occupation of the South in 1877, as a result of a compromise over a contest the contested election of 1876, the white terror groups drove all black office holders throughout the South from office and prevented blacks from voting again, in more than token numbers, uh, for nearly a century. It wasn't until 1965 that blacks, with the Voting Rights Act, that black people returned to the polls and democracy had a chance in the American South. Well, you know, Professor, there was one thing as I was doing some of my own research on the Ku Klux Klan Act, 
President Grant, he requested this legislation and they were focused on the increase in violence that was occurring specifically in the state of South Carolina. South Carolina was the first black governed state. They had more representatives, towns, um, what we now call Hilton Head. That was the location of one of the first black governed black towns. Harriet Tugman visited the town as well. And so black folks had real power in South Carolina and the Klan's focused energy was on making sure that those black folks went back to the plantation and to strip them of the right to govern that state with the sheer will of numbers and power. And because of that, because of the increased violence in South Carolina, President Grant requested the legislation. And again, because I'm always making connections and drawing the dots, the attack on the AME church by Roof, the killer that sat in a Bible study and then after the Bible study killed African-American worshipers in that mother church, AME mother church, uh, was thought out, planned, and executed to create fear in the minds of Black people. History is repeating its ugly self again with this new MAGA mob that had stormed our our capital. Um, That's absolutely right. Um, And they are aware of that history. That's why we saw them carrying Confederate flags. The the KKK violence in South Carolina after the, the Civil War was uh, intense, unrelenting, and it unfortunately in the end succeeded in driving uh, democracy away from uh, South Carolina and from the rest of the South. One of the investigators, Army Major Lewis Merrill, who was sent by President Grant uh, to investigate, described the counties in South Carolina as, quote, under the domination of systematic and organized depravity. Uh, The situation uh, was a a carnival of crime not paralleled in the history of any civilized community. uh, That led President Grant to sign the Ku Klux Klan Act, making it a federal crime to deprive any American citizens of their civil rights through racial terrorism. Grant warned the nine, nine rebel South Carolina counties, the rebellion after the failed rebellion, right, the Klan rebellion. Uh, that martial law would be declared if the Klan didn't disperse. The warning was, of course, ignored. Grant declared uh, martial law, and uh, federal forces were then allowed to arrest and imprison KKK members and instigators of racial terrorism uh, without having to bring them before a judge or into a court. Because there was no point going to a judge or a court in South Carolina because the judges and courts were all run by the uh, white supremacist forces. Oh my goodness, we are out of time. To my listeners, tune in again for a continuation of my discussion with Professor Anthony Paul Farley from Albany Law School when we will continue talking about the Ku Klux Klan Act and the lawsuit against President Trump. 
that was part one of a new series I'm doing called Reclaiming History, The Fight Against Hate. Keep listening for more in this series. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Lavonia Mallory. And I'm Guy Schaefer, and you are listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. Thank you to all our volunteers and sanctuary sustainers. You can hear all of the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org. Up next, in honor of Women's History Month, Rensselaer County historian Kathy Sheehan spoke with producer Melissa Bromley about some of the remarkable women who've lived in this area. I'm Kathy Sheehan. I am the Rensselaer County and Troy City historian and educator here at the Hart Clewitt Museum of Historic Rensselaer County. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. It is Women's History Month, and I know that you know a lot of pretty amazing women who are from Rensselaer County and the Capital Region. Uh, is there anybody in particular who you'd like to talk about today? Oh my gosh, a, a, a few. I, I've picked out um, like four or five, <laughs> five women. Uh, one is a woman who was born, didn't spend a lot of time here in Rensselaer County, but she is um, so important to her name. And you may have heard a little bit about her, um, Edmonia Lewis, who was the first African-American and Native American sculptor and uh, she was born around 1844 down in Greenbush in Southern Rensselaer County. Um, spent, we don't really know too much about her early life here. Um, her mother died young. She was raised by her father. She was part um, Ojibwa, I always say pronounce this wrong, Ojibwa, Ojibwa mother. And um, don't know much about her father, but her artwork is spectacular. If you Google her sculptures, because she was able to go to Boston. She got some early trace. She went to Oberlin College and had to leave because she was uh, attacked and um, they accused her of, of attacking a white person. So she ended up having to leave, goes to Boston and um, is befriended by William Lloyd Garrison and uh, a sculptor named Edward Brackett. And so Brackett really, uh, she becomes but kind of his apprentice and she's able to make enough money by doing some, some work there that she was able to go to Rome. And actually the thing she made it was the one she made money on was a bust of uh, Colonel Robert Shaw, who was the, um, who led the all black uh, 54th Massachusetts regiment. If you remember the movie Glory with mm -hmm. Denzel Washington uh, about the, the, the 54th uh, black regiment. Uh, so she did his bust and then- what, up, Around what time was this that, that she went to Rome? Um, she is, I see, she goes to Rome. When did she go to Rome? Around, uh, right after the civil war, um, 1870s. Wow. Um, that's around when she's there and she spends her finally, her kind of her final years are really shrouded in a little bit of a mystery. Uh, Bobby Reno, who is East Greenbush town historian is kind of taken her on. And uh, so she's, she's kind of digging into her life. They thought that she um, died in Rome in Italy, but it turns out she actually went to England, but she actually met with Frederick Douglass in Rome. Um, she did these, a lot of depictions of early Greek and, and uh, Roman architecture uh, in marble. I mean, absolutely stunning work uh, and ridiculously expensive. <laughs> I, everybody keeps asking me if we have one in our collection. I said, we couldn't afford it. The Albany Institute doesn't even have one. Wow. They have a great sculpture collection. They would love one too. Uh, you can see her work at the Met though. You get, she, has, she has some work at the Met. So uh, so that's 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 one of the persons. And, and, um, and Edmonia, what's her last name again? Edmonia Lewis. Edmonia Lewis, Edmonia yeah. Lewis. 
We might have to make two interviews out of this because I think we're about halfway through this, but let's let's oh, no. let's move on yeah. to the, the next person. So one of the other big, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of teachers and um, there was a teacher who was a suffragette and her name was Evanetta Hare. Um, she was born in 1863 and died in 1938, taught at school too, not far from the, not far from the sanctuary. I love school too. And um, she was a huge one fight. She fought for <laughs> uh, better terms for teachers, better contracts. Uh, she fought for women uh, in the Redsler County Political Equality Club. She was a founding member of the Troy Polit Political Equality Club. She spoke on the national on the national scale. When um, was this? Her name is Evanetta Hare. Uh, she was a principal. She became principal of school two. Wow. Um, she went to Troy High. Uh, she when was, when was this? Uh, she let's see. She graduated from Troy High in eighteen eighty one. And she was principal of school two in 1892 and retired in 1933. Wow. So she had a very long career, a very, very long career. Um, we actually got a great quote from her. I was going to read you real fast. Um, it was 1917. Of course, women had not gotten the right to vote. As a matter of fact, Rensselaer County had voted it down twice. And she said, and I quote, all suffragists will agree with you when you say every male voter should show his right to vote by familiarizing himself with the arguments for and against and by voting not from temporary impulse or from whim. If he does this, if he considers only arguments for and against and no extraneous influences, he will be fair to the women of his state and give them the vote. For this war, and of course they're talking about World War I, in which we are engaged has demolished every argument against women's suffrage, the woman in the home argument, the woman cannot fight argument. The woman does not know enough argument. The danger of feminizing argument. I wish I knew Evanetta here. <laughs> she just sounds like a real pistol. Um, she was really uh, quite an extraordinary woman. And as a principal, you imagine that, you know, her influence really rippled out into the community. Yeah, there's one very grainy photo and you really can barely tell it was out of the newspaper and she's sitting and these kids are just like all surrounding her and uh you know there's just like these big smiles on her face and everything i said oh you know she was just so dedicated yeah and we didn't know about her for years <laughs> what how did you find out about her um there's been a, there's a great newspaper website now called fultonhistory.com and this man has done has digitized more newspapers i think than the library of congress has and it's been just this has opened the world up so when you can search in by topic and you know names and so we you, you talk, type in suffrage and all once all these names start coming up of people that we hadn't known about you mm. know so um and then you get to dig and then you spark you know you you go from there it's um, like it, a historical um what do they call it on youtube when you get uh like spiraled into a rabbit hole or something yes oh we've gone down some serious rabbit holes <laughs> And so, next thing you know, you look up and four hours later have gone by. <laughs> I believe it. I could do that too. Um, we just have a couple minutes left and, and we will talk about the other women on another interview. Um, but is there anything else that you want to say about these two women before we move on? Well, I, I think again, it's it's one of those things we, you know, you hear women are, we're trying to get our just due at this point, you know, and, and that there's so many more stories out. There's always more stories uh, and more they have, had such an impact on the county and, and the history of our Rens Troy and Rensselaer County. So it's exciting. With one more minute left, do, is there um, 
anything that you would like to ask the community uh, as far as how they might support the historical work that you guys are doing for women now and into the future? Well, certainly, um, as people have, one of the things we've heard about with COVID this year is everybody's doing these deep dives into their papers and things. So before you throw anything away, let us send us an email, let us know what you have. Certainly, we always could use donations too to keep going. It's, you know, you got to keep the lights and the heat going and keep staff here. And so, gosh, we're always grateful to get any kind of monetary donations really pleased. But we are really interested in, you know, what do you, what do you find? What's your, what is your story? Um, we our, part, our mission statement is recognizing every face and every story. So we want to know the hidden stories. It's, it's not just about rich people and poor, you know, we, we, we want to know about everybody. Send us your story. <laughs> yep. And you can go to the Hart Cluett Museum uh, website to, to find out how to get in touch. Yep. You just go hartcluett.org. That was Rensselaer County historian Kathy Sheehan speaking with HMM's Melissa Bromley about some of the many notable women from Rensselaer County. Next, in another segment of Reclaiming History, Livonia Mallory interviews a local president of the Schenectady chapter of the NAACP, Nicole Harris, to talk about the lawsuit filed against ex-president Trump and Rudy Giuliani for violating the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on another segment of Reclaiming History. For my listeners, can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Reverend Nicole D. Harris. I am the pastor of Doryu Memorial in Zion Church, which is in Schenectady in the Hamilton Hill section. And I am the newly elected uh, president for the Schenectady branch of the NAACP. Our, our branch is just continuing to work for equality and equity for all residents of Schenectady. Looking forward tonight to talking to you about the suit that uh, has been filed against Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, that's all about the uh, Enforcement Act of 1871. So what does NAACP stand for? It is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So just to get my listeners up to speed, um, recently the NAACP filed a lawsuit against uh, President Donald Trump and Rudolph Giuliani for violating the civil, our civil rights or the civil rights of Americans by trying to suppress the vote. They used a, a 1825 legislation that was passed during the Reconstruction period because during that time, uh, states like South Carolina had elected uh, a significant number of black congressmen. It was pretty much a black governed state and the Klan had had enough. And so they had begun to attempt to su suppress the vote through violence, through aggression. And um, the then president uh, Grant uh, requested new legislation to protect the voting rights of people uh, throughout the nation, mostly in the South, where the Klan was trying to suppress the, the rights of uh, people, Black people, recently emancipated slaves. And so based on that legislation, the NAACP has brought a lawsuit against President Trump and uh, Giuliani 
uh, and uh, they are represented by a, a very uh, good uh, legal team. And um, I don't recall, uh, Reverend, do you know who the senator is? I believe he's, he may be a congressman Cong from Mississippi. Yeah. Mississippi Congressman uh, Benny Thompson. So, so what is the NAACP doing now uh, locally? Um, and, and what is your position as it relates to this suit? So our position, my position as it relates to this federal lawsuit is that we support it. Um, we were witnesses, just like many other Americans, of the insurrection and what happened. And I can only imagine what Congressman uh, Thompson experienced being in the Capitol that day, uh, the fear that he uh, probably had for his life. Um, and we watched as uh, a group of people who pretended to be patriots tried to rip away the rights. Of, of Americans. And so we, we support the NAACP, we support this this lawsuit, and it is my hope that justice will be had and that what could not be accomplished with the second impeachment trial will be accomplished here, which is justice. So I, I watched uh, in horror as they uh, breached the Capitol, and I was quite surprised how brazen they were and how public they were with everything that they were doing. Uh, they all had their cameras up as they were walking into the Capitol. Um, and, and now the FBI is using some of that footage to, to make arrests. And, and I was also surprised to see so many Christian symbols used mm. during the insurrection. Crosses uh, right, right beside wooden crosses, right beside wooden gallows, Christian flags, uh, right beside Trump flags, um, a lot of mixing of, of messages there. Uh, as a person of faith, what do you think about that? What, what do you say to young people who see that? How do you explain that to them? Oh, so yeah, seeing those images, right, of the cross, and I even heard on this report, um, I was watching on television, that uh, someone said, when we got inside, we prayed on the Capitol floor. Um, there's a, there's a uh, passage of scripture in Second Timothy 3, 5, that says that there are some who have an appearance of godliness, but denying its power, right? So it was an appearance of godliness. It was not godliness, but an appearance of it. And, you know, godliness is not about violence, uh, about hate, about any of those things. And so I understand uh, the frustration in seeing that and saying, you know, is this Christianity? And I think conflict with the evangelical group of Christianity being Trump supporters and supporting things that parts of the universal church uh, look at and say, okay, that's not that's not godly. That's not Christian-like. And, and so to the young people who are witnessing this, I just want to let them know that just because it looked like it is godly does not mean it's godly. It's not about appearance. Uh, godliness is about the heart. The Bible talks about God seeing the heart. So know that it's about the heart and not, and not the symbols that you saw. So how can local people get involved with the NAACP to support this lawsuit? Well, you can find our, our local branch on Facebook, the Schenectady branch for branch 2175. And if you're in the capital region, there's, there's, a, uh, uh, there's a branch in Troy, there's a branch in Albany. I would encourage you to get involved with your local branch of the NAACP because this federal law means that things are being 
fought on a national level, but there's always work that can be done on the local level, you know, right on the mm-hmm. ground where you are. So I would say get involved with your local branch and, you know, you see a good fight, get in it. You know, we're in a good fight right now in this country. Um, and I use the word fight uh, in the sense of, you know, um, that good trouble that John Lewis talked about getting into, you know? Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, get, we want to go out there getting good trouble so that this country can live up to the ideals that it's always spoke about, but never quite reached. Is the NAACP composed of uh, African-Americans or are there other races represented in the organization? And can a person who is not African-American join the organization? Oh, absolutely. If you look into the history of the NAACP, there's always been members of different ethnicities, you know, and and nationalities, even from its very conception, right, from the founding of it. So, uh, Reverend, can you give my listeners the contact information for the Schenectady chapter, chapter of the NAACP? Sure. You can find the Schenectady branch of the NAACP on Facebook. We are uh, branch 2175. So if you type that in, you'll find us on. That was another of my new series entitled Reclaiming History, the Fight Against Hate. I was talking with uh, Reverend Nicole, uh, who is the president of the Schenectady branch. That's Reverend Nicole Harris. Uh, The Arts Center of the Capital Region is open to the public with two exhibitions currently on display. Varen Fetishismus, Commodity Fetishism by Jamie Rodriguez, which will be reported on in another segment, and 120 Degree Intercollegiate Regional. HMM Sina Bazila Hickey spoke with Belinda Colon, curator of the Arts Center, to learn more about the regional and its importance to regional collegiate artists. Hello, nice to meet you, Sina. Belinda. Nice to meet you. My name is Belinda Colon, and I am the curator at the Arts Center of the Capital Region. The Intercollegiate Show, it's the 120 degree Intercollegiate Art Regional. Now, this show encompasses artists from a 120 mile radius of Glens Falls, which is where the Lower Adirondack Regional Arts Center is through Saratoga Springs, and again, 125 miles east, west, north, south of there, as well as Troy um, for the Art Center of the Capital Region. So this expands down to New Paltz and out towards the west and out toward the east. And this program was, or this partnership was started between LARAC, Saratoga Arts, and the Art Center of the Capital Region, I believe over 15 years ago. I believe this will be the fifth session of it going through so what happens is it rotates between each of our organizations so that we can try to expand out to as many students as possible everyone that's in the show is um, is registered and a uh, participant in college they can be either in a bachelor's program or they could be in a uh, master's program but they have to be you know registered into a college situation Um, and we're trying to give them a moment to be outside of their institutions to have their work shown and and yeah it's a really great project it's like it's like the holidays for me when it comes because these students just create these amazing products of their education but because it's not inside of their institutions i hope that they share things that they might not have shared in school 
you know, um, because they want to share it to a broader audience. But, uh, but it's a great show. It is juried by Anthony Kafritz, who is the director of Salem Artworks in Salem, New York. And uh, he came over and juried. We have six artists who have been recognized. Three of them are honorable mentions, and three of them are jurors' choice. Uh, they all get a membership to the Art Center, so we're hoping that the 120-mile radius can, some, can benefit them by all means somehow, um, that they can take classes here and do different things, and then there's a small stipend as well. That's an amazing opportunity. I've been talking with people how, how, what is missing in the education system, and I think these outside opportunities are very valuable just to kind of get that additional education that you're often not getting in your classroom. Right, like, you know, one of the benefits to this show is that we, we have to talk to students about signing a contract, about looking or, or, you know, reading an agreement, reading a contract, what it means, um, taking, you know, re taking note of what the dates are that things are dropped off or picked up or what the guidelines are or how to display your work or um, how to really understand that your work is a presentation of you. So, um, so there are, you know, so there's a little bit of, which is great, hand-holding in this, which is nice because we get to give them that real life experience when it comes to what people are going to expect of them when they're applying. So to be an experience for them to be able to feel like they're doing it on their own, I really, really, really um, support. and. You know, I usually tell, I've had some professors, so I usually go to the professors, I had the professors send this information out, we all do, right? We reach out to all the colleges within that 120 mile radius of that region that we spoke of. And then we ask them to make, you know, so some of them will come back and say, oh, I can't teach them how to do this or read an agreement or this, and I say, don't because I want to be able to have that conversation with them. I want them to understand that it's not just a teaching moment for you as their professor, but it's also a teaching moment for them as, as being um, you know, adults going into the world of the arts. And, um, and it works out really well because I think there's a, different, there's a different energy between myself or the arts administrator versus the professor and the student. And you know, so, um, so it ends up being a real, relationship building moment where we can really have conversations with these students and ask them what they want from it, how they want to visualize their work. So I have some students who will come in and hand me, you know, hand me a print and I'll say to them, how do you want to display this? And they're like, oh, I don't care. And I say, okay, so just so you, just so you know, these are your different options. This is how you can do it. So I like to really create an experience where they learn, but I'm not, I'm giving them the choice. So these are your options. This is what you can do. You still tell me, and then I'll do it. And then I'll show you what I did after. And then also I let them know what they shouldn't do so that their artwork doesn't get destroyed or something doesn't happen. You know, don't put holes in the front of your piece if you don't want holes and they can rip and, you know. So a lot of students had a lot of challenges this year, um, especially with this show. We had probably about 10 to 15 students who had to pull out because they had they couldn't get off campus, which is fair. Um, they didn't have the money to ship, or they couldn't even get into the facilities at the school to get their work out of their studios. They couldn't use the print services. Um, so it was very, very challenging for these students to do this year, and not this year, to do this this year. And I am so proud 
and just honored that these students follow through and did it because this was a lot to do, especially coming back in after the holiday and having to be on point to get this work to me. And, uh, and, and I, really, I really appreciated that, yeah. The Capital Region Arts Center is now open to the public. You can find it at 265 River Street in Troy, New York. Right after this interview took place, the 120 degree intercollegiate art regional had their award ceremony on Friday, March 26th. To see some of the artwork that was on display, visit their website at artscenteronline.org. As Sina was leaving the Arts Center of the Capital Region, she turned the corner to the side of the building to visit the touring COVID-19 tribute, a mural titled Still Life with Gratitude, painted by Rachel Baxter and paired with a poem by Dee Collin. This mural is traveling to different locations around the Capital Region with support from United Way. As I was walking down River Street in Troy, New York, right where there's the Troy, New York painting on the side of a brick wall by this windy walkway, I saw the traveling mural, Still Life with Gratitude. That's where I met Katie Nelson at United Way of the Greater Capital Region. And she told me a little bit more about the piece and some of the symbolism in it. Okay, we are outside in front of the Troy, New York mural on the side of the building on River Street. And we're by a traveling or touring mural. Could you please describe the piece? Sure. So this is a piece, I work with the United Way of the Greater Capital Region, and uh, we partnered recently with a local artist. Her name is Rachel Baxter um, at the Albany Center Gallery. Um, and she created this beautiful mural for us, which is called Still Life with Gratitude. Um, and really the purpose of the mural is in memory of all of those lives that we've lost with COVID, um, all of those who have struggled over the last 12 months, um, as well as, you know, showing gratitude towards our frontline heroes and all of the essential workers helping us to get through the last 12 months. Um, so this mural is in their honor and it's traveling throughout the capital region for about two weeks. So this will be on display until April 2nd and it will travel throughout, you know, each county in the capital region. Okay, now could you please describe what does the mural look like? Like also how high it is and where it's situated? So the mural is two wooden panels uh, placed together. It is eight feet by eight feet. Um, it's a beautiful depiction of a variety of flowers, each of which have a special meaning. Um, and around the bouquet of flowers are all of the phases in the moon, which resemble time passing. So we have a yellow mulin and eucalyptus, which stands for healing, forget-me-nots, which stand for remembrance, echinacea, which represents strength, tulips, which are the official flower of Albany, and they're orange, which signifies spiritual and emotional connection, as well as appreciation, the zinnias for endurance, and the lilacs for remembrance. What has the reaction been to the mural? Have you seen people being touched by the um, by the message of grieving. Yeah, so there's been a you know great response to the mural. Um, it's really when we started this project, our goal was to provide the community with an outlet to come together, to grieve, to express gratitude, and we were trying to meet them where they were, right? Meet the community members where they are, which is why the mural travels um, and. A very unique piece of this mural is that there's an interactive component. So those who come to visit the mural 
can actually write, um, you know, a statement of remembrance or gratitude and put it on the mural, which has the same color representation as the backdrop, the, the blue backdrop, um, and leave it on the mural forever. Right, so we partnered with Dee Collin, who is a local Troy-based poet. Um, she developed a beautiful piece called What We Have Now. And really this was her reflection um, being a woman of color during the pandemic, um, you know, her reflection of her experience over the last 12 months. And it's beautiful. It's, um, it's really depicted, I think, all of, you know, all of the hardships, all of the challenges yet all of the strength that is coming out of this past year. Um, and she's actually traveling with us to some of our locations to do a reading of the poem. So we, we started with this mural traveling in Schenectady County, which was on Tuesday, March 23rd to Wednesday, March 24th. Uh, Tuesday, the 23rd actually marked the one year anniversary of the first passing of a local individual that was attributed to COVID-19. Um, so, Thursday, March 25th through Friday, March 26th. It is at Troy at River Street at the uh, Art Center at the Capital Region. Tomorrow, Saturday, March 27th to Sunday, March 28th. It will be at Karina Contemporary Jewelry on 10 Washington Street in Boston Spa. Monday, March 29th, it will be at the Create Council on the Arts which is 398 Main Street in Catskill. On Tuesday, March 30th, Hudson Hall in, at 327 Warren Street in Hudson. Wednesday, March 31st at Kelly Farm and Garden at 259 West Main Street, Cobleskill. Thursday, April 1st to Friday, April 2nd at the Albany Institute of History and Art at 125 Washington Avenue in Albany. And it will conclude on Saturday, April 3rd at the Crossings of Colony, 580 Albany Shaker Road in Loudonville. The United Way of the Greater Capital Region works to fight for the health, education, and financial stability of every person in our community, um, which has never been more relevant than the last 12 months during COVID. Um, so really this piece, you know, really symbolizes that element of coming together, you know, hopefully, hopefully turning the corner, remembering those that we've lost, recognizing, you know, that there are probably more to come, but, you know, we work towards hope and gratitude to, to get out of the last 12 months together. There are still opportunities to catch Rachel Baxter's mural, Still Life with Gratitude, and poetry reading event by Dee Collin until April 3rd around the Capital Region. Find the locations by visiting unitedway underscore GCR on Instagram. Reported on by HMM's Sina Bazila Hickey. Uh, guess what? Is it that time again, Lavonia? That concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lavonia Mallory. And I'm Guy Schaefer, and our engineer tonight is Sina Bazila Hickey. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news. You can find all the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash WOC 105.3 FM. This program is produced entirely by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute to local stories of social and environmental justice, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call us at 518 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518- 518-
972-2390. And if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in.